Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Matthew Pottinger, who was Deputy National Security Advisor for the Trump administration, is now a visiting senior fellow at the Hoover Institution in California, and is one of our country's leading, most knowledgeable China experts. He's also, like me, an alumnus of the Wall Street Journal. So I want to say a special welcome to you, Matt. David, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. So, Matt, I want to try to unpack the many issues that uh, surfaced in last week's uh, meeting of the House Select Committee on China and the, and the broad background to that uh, debate. And I want to begin with some news that came out of China today, where their departing uh, premier, Li Keqiang, announced that their growth rate set for this year will be lower than the rate they set last year. This year, they want 5%. Last year, they'd set 5.5% and seem to have fallen well below that. Most estimates are around 3%. What do you make of these uh, lowering growth estimates for China? The, the evidence we, we seem to have of, of a slowing Chinese economy, what difference is that going to make for China and the world? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that over the long term, uh, it doesn't bode well for China's uh, 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 comprehensive national power, to use the phrase that, that they, uh, they're fond of using. Uh, what, what we're seeing is that Xi Jinping really prizes political control over the goal of growing the economy. Uh, if you look at the things that he's done over the past few years, he's really uh, undermined the private sector. Uh, he has undermined the, the most dynamic areas of the tech sector by pushing the founders and, and the, the leaders of, uh, of big companies, Jack Ma being only the most uh, prominent, but there, there are many other founders of Ping Duo Duo and uh, ByteDance and others who've been pushed out and the party uh, the party state, the Chinese Communist Party, has built in at all levels of the company, all the way up to the top, uh, governance structures that allow them to, uh, at a minimum, veto uh, important business decisions by these companies. So I don't think it bodes well over the long term for the Chinese economy. But what it does speak to is what Xi Jinping's goals are. They're not really about uh, growing the economy. So I, I want to ask, uh, before we leave this subject of economic growth, there's a, an idea that you hear some people in the Biden White House uh, discuss, and, and that is that maybe we're seeing peak China, that rather than ever greater growth that leads to a Chinese economy that's bigger than that of the United States, that at, at the rates of growth that are likely, China may not, in fact, overtake the United States. This idea that China is inevitably a dominant economic superpower may be wrong. What's your What's your judgment? Are we Are we seeing peak China, or is there a lot more upside still? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that there, if we look at all of the things that she has done to his economy and that he's going to continue to do, um, remember, they're masters of dual messaging. They, they, they sent uh, uh, senior emissaries to Davos to say, okay, the, the, the economic hemorrhaging is over. We've reversed zero COVID, which is true enough. But also the, the message for foreign investors is that uh, the rectification campaigns for the property sector and for gaming and for uh, big tech are over as well. When you look at the internal messaging that Xi Jinping is delivering to his party, the 96 or so million uh, uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party who run the country, um, he is actually looking to even more deeply centralize control. And we're going to learn more over the next uh, week or so at these two meetings, the National People's Congress. So are we at peak China? Maybe uh, economically. Uh, but in terms of what China wants to get done under Xi Jinping, what Xi Jinping specifically wants to get done at this at this period, while he still uh, hasn't fallen too far off of his peak, is is uh, really the thing that we need to be on guard against, right? I mean, to to use a metaphor, when a star dies, it expands, it turns into a red giant, and it envelops everything, you know, within a massive. Uh, um, a radius of it. And we might be at a moment like that, where we're going to see uh, a, a expansion, an attempt to lock in uh, geopolitical gains, for example, uh, before the demographic time bomb and, and, uh, and the poor, less efficient economy uh, start to uh, really slow down uh, uh, China's ability uh, to, uh, uh, to achieve its aims. When I have to think about that image of the expanding but dying red star, that's that's a, a powerful one. Uh, but just to, to close out this subject, I'm curious, Matt, whether you think that it's possible that we're, on the one hand, underestimating Xi's uh, intentions, his desire to dominate, but at the same time overestimating his capabilities to achieve that. I, I hope you're right about that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that people are, are coming to grips with what those aspirations are. The intentions side of the equation is something that I think we've uh, not paid sufficient heed to over the last 10 years, the, the, to Xi Jinping's first 10 years as a dictator. He's just inaugurated a, a second decade in power, probably, with, with the 20th Party Congress that wrapped up uh, last October. Um, I, look, the, I think there's quite a lot of damage that could be done. Uh, if Xi Jinping attempts to achieve those very grandiose aims uh, that he's spoken about quietly for the last 10 years, but for which there's now a canon, as, as I mentioned in my testimony the other night, there, there, there's now uh, enough of his speeches have been declassified. Um, uh, enough of them have been discovered in Chinese language and translated, not by, of course, the Chinese government, but by scholars like Matthew Johnson at the Hoover Institution and others who are reading um, what Xi Jinping has actually been saying. So, um, but but to your question on does he have the capability to achieve those aims? Um, I don't think he is going to achieve all those aims. The question is, what does he believe? I, you know, I I don't believe uh, Vladimir Putin is going to conquer Ukraine. But the operative question, as we found out a year ago, was what does Vladimir Putin believe? He thought he could. And this is a this is an affliction that uh, affects dictators all the time, especially when they've been in power a long time, the way that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have been in power. They start to believe their own 
sense of destiny. They start to believe uh, that their ambitions are achievable and that the United States is crumbling and that the West is uh, is unraveling and and uh, irrevocably. You know, we've, we've seen moments like this in the 1930s when uh, European uh, autocrats came to similar uh, views about uh, the future of democracy and then made their big gambits. They rolled the iron dice and tried to conquer the world and with massively uh, 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 painful uh, results and the deaths of tens of millions of people worldwide. Xi Jinping, uh, according to our Secretary of State, and I, and I have to believe that he would not have made this public unless he believed that uh, he had high confidence in it, uh, Xi Jinping is now uh, conniving to start providing arms and ammunition uh, to Russia to prosecute the largest war in Europe uh, since 1945. That is a very big deal. This could be the tipping point where we where we see an accelerated decoupling between the West and China. And again, China and, and just like Vladimir Putin, they are the protagonists of this story. They're the ones who are driving events. And we are sort of in, in surprise reacting belatedly uh, to the things that they're doing. So I, I actually commend Secretary Blinken for uh, uh, for calling out uh, Beijing's plans publicly. So we'll get to the question of Chinese weapons uh, to uh, Russia in the Ukraine war in a minute. I want to ask you about the baseline hot button issue in the U.S.-China relationship, and that's Taiwan. There have been reports for several years now that China is planning for a resolution of the Taiwan issue from its standpoint, meaning presumably an invasion Earlier than the U.S. might have thought, perhaps in the next year or two, you've seen statements by people uh, in the military to that effect. I'll ask you directly, uh, as the person who oversaw our China policy during the Trump administration, do you believe that she is speeding up his timetable uh, for uh, mm -hmm. taking Taiwan and has decided to resolve that issue once and for all while he's president? Yeah, I, I suspect that he uh, is going to make this his legacy um, uh, uh, achievement. Uh, he, he, is, he is determined on his watch, I believe, uh, to try to resolve, as you put it, and as he puts it, the, the Taiwan question. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of timing. I mean, he's a 70-year-old uh, dictator who's just inaugurated his another five-year term without having identified a potential successor, which means he's probably on track planning for uh, another 10 years in power. Uh, we've seen him take a number of steps that haven't gotten a lot of attention yet, basically um, uh, preparing the society for war, uh, passing new laws that are designed to mobilize the society, build out the reserve capacity. He's building combat uh, field hospitals across Fujian province right now, right across from uh, uh, Beijing. He's building um, uh, air raid shelters right now. Uh, you know, it, it's reminiscent of the, of the 1950s uh, with the Korean War uh, and, and then with the Sino-Soviet split when he mobilized, Mao Zedong mobilized the society to start uh, digging tunnels and moving a lot of their manufacturing in, in, into the, you know, the underbelly of mountains and things like that. This is happening right now. We're, we're, we're seeing very strident language 
uh, in some of the uh, authentic, the, the more authoritative publications like Qiu Shi, uh, Seeking Truth Magazine, the Communist Party Theoretical Journal. There, there was just a, a, a very uh, uh, troubling piece on Xi Jinping's Xi Jinping thought on on militarization. Uh, so I, I think that if we look at what he's saying, if we look at what he's now doing, uh, I, I think that it, it would be uh, the prudent thing for us to do would be to uh, uh, assume that he is moving toward uh, uh, forcing a uh, an end game uh, to this situation. And so it's it's incumbent upon the democracies of the world. Uh, to enhance our, our military capabilities rapidly and those of Taiwan in order to try to deter a conflict. Again, we everything that I've seen the Biden administration talk about and, and the Trump administration before that and other administrations before that are about preserving the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, not about challenging the status quo. But again, Xi Jinping is the protagonist in the story. He's trying to actively change the status quo from one of a stable uh, modus vivendi, where Taiwan uh, does not have uh, de jure independence, and where uh, countries around the world recognize uh, their their own one China policies, she wants to move towards an active annexation of Taiwan. So again, he is the protagonist, changing the status quo here. We have an audience question that's very much on target on on this topic. Roger Williams from Virginia asks. Does mutually assured destruction remain a viable strategic construct in the U.S.-China relationship to sufficiently restrain an all-out invasion of, of Taiwan? And I want to re rephrase or add to that uh, in this way, Matt. Should Taiwan, in your mind, have a public guarantee, a, a nuclear umbrella from the United States like the Article 5 commitment that we give to NATO allies? Well, it, I, it might be something that we would consider uh, uh, looking at, but, but I think that using conventional arms, um, we can demonstrate uh, that a invasion of Taiwan uh, is likely to fail. In other words, I think that there are conventional means to deterring a war, uh, an, an ill-advised war that, that Xi Jinping is clearly considering right now, uh, that would not require uh, us putting Taiwan uh, explicitly under our, our nuclear extended deterrent umbrella. Um, we need to start talking about the ways that Beijing may seek to uh, threaten uh, uh, escalation, dominance, including all the way up the ladder to uh, to nuclear and some of the things that we would do and that our allies would do. We need to start having those conversations with, with one another, with our allies, with Taiwan as well, first privately. Um, I, I don't think that it's necessary to uh, take the step of, of uh, declaring uh, proactively that Taiwan is is under our uh, our umbrella. Remember, we're trying to maintain the status quo. We're not trying to change it. So I, I hear you saying that uh, a, a change to uh, Article 5, which is part of the NATO Charter, guarantee that the U.S. would respond by all means, including nuclear weapons, to an attack is not currently something you'd recommend. What about something that specifies that if Taiwan is attacked, the U.S. would respond militarily, uh, leaving that perhaps at the conventional level? Would you support that? 
I, I support uh, the, President Biden for already having done so. Uh, President Biden has now said four times uh, that uh, that he would send U.S. forces uh, to uh, protect Taiwan in the event that that China uh, attacked. And uh, so I, I, I commend President Biden for uh, for making those statements. I, I think in some sense that question settled right now, at least at least with respect to the current administration. I don't think future administrations should back down from uh, from President Biden's uh, standard that he just set. There is still this uh, uh, idea of strategic ambiguity. I agree with you. It's the least ambiguous ambiguity I ever saw. But let's let's move on. Uh, I'm going to talk about U.S.-China relations overall. Um, in our introduction, we described them as at their lowest state. Certainly, I've heard administration officials say much the same thing, that, that, that they're at, at their lowest uh, level in, in, in modern times. Uh, do you agree with that characterization? Um, does it trouble you at all? And what, if anything, do you think we should do about it? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that the relationship uh, is is at the worst that it's been since the Tiananmen massacre in 1989, um, and then there was sort of a slow road back to rebuilding ties. Um, and uh, you know, the United States made a big gamble uh, in in the 1990s uh, and and following through in the early 2000s that we would. Uh, bring China into the world, uh, uh, really enrich China, train its uh, its experts, its new business leaders and technocrats, even military officers, scientists, uh, and open our markets up in order to raise help raise the standard of living uh, in China with the hope, and it was an explicit hope of successive uh, administrations in the United States, that over time China would evolve into something uh, friendlier and more liberal, first as a, a more liberal market system, and then hopefully even its political system would follow. I don't think it was an, a, a crazy idea. Uh, you know, we if you think back to our victory in the Cold War, where we were able to peacefully uh, bring, bring the Cold War to a uh, soft landing, we saw uh, Europe embrace all the Eastern They became market democracies. Uh, I, I think that it, it was a reasonable strategy to try, but that strategy has failed uh, categorically. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, we, we should not be clinging to an engagement strategy, even though there should always be elements of engagement in our current strategy. I'm not saying we don't engage. I'm saying that the emphasis now needs to be on uh, uh, are, you know, protecting, uh, the national security interests and prosperity of, uh, of, of free countries, the United States and our allies and, and other partners around the world. So that is, that is a, uh, a, a, a strategic competition. Uh, and, and really Beijing is risking turning this into a confrontation now with the actions that it's undertaking, not least, uh, it's getting involved in, uh, in in the biggest European war since World War II. This is really dangerous stuff that Beijing is uh, is tinkering with right now. Uh, as you know better than I, Matt, the U.S. has a lot of uh, weapons programs, military initiatives designed to deal with the growing Chinese challenge in the Indo-Pacific. Um, even so, President Biden decided 
last year, and Xi Jinping seems to have made the same decision at the Bali summit, that uh, they, they both wanted a floor under this deteriorating, increasingly competitive relationship. That, that was, the, to me, the outcome of the Bali meeting. Do you think that that's a good idea to have a floor, uh, even as we compete uh, ever more intensely? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm uh, strongly in favor of high-level uh, contact between President Biden and, and Xi Jinping. I think it's uh, uh, this, this is the single most important channel between the two countries, right? There, 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 there used to be a lot of activity that was taking place at a working level that I think um, did not end up uh, uh, serving the strategic purpose that we hoped it would. But what we, but at the highest level, given that Xi Jinping is really the only person authorized to make decisions anymore in in that society on the economy, on on military matters and diplomacy, uh, it, it is important for President Biden to maintain uh, regular contact by phone and in person with. Uh, uh, with Xi, look, it, putting the the Biden administration uses the term guardrails. Uh, uh, you use the term putting a floor under the relationship. That, I think that that is, uh, uh, that is all well and good. I think that we should, we should uh, make the effort to try to lay out a vision for what a, um, a, uh, a reasonable relationship might look like. I, I used to think back um, to uh, the Chinese premier Zhu Rongji, uh, who used to say, you know, our relations with the United States are, are never going to be great, but they also don't need to be, uh, you know, horrendous. Uh, that's not a bad place to aim for. But as we do it, we should not be um, uh, overly wishful in our thinking that that Beijing is going to reciprocate, because so far the 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 uh, indicators are that Beijing is not willing to reciprocate. If if you look at Xi Jinping's the compendium of what he's been talking about for 10 years, he believes that China has now uh, reached what he calls, you know, uh, 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 an opportunity unseen in a century. Okay. He talks about this a lot, this idea that, and when you, when you read his speeches and you also read some of the internal facing uh, senior level communist party textbooks, the textbooks that general officers in the PLA read, they talk about the decline of the United States and chaos in Europe as though they are prerequisites for China taking advantage of this opportunity unseen in a century. So we just have to be very clear-eyed about how Xi is describing this moment. He's not describing this as a moment of how do we find guardrails? How do we avoid uh, you know, uh, an accidental war? How do we put a floor under things? That's not how he's talking when he's talking to his party leadership. He's saying, we have a moment of opportunity it's finite. We need to move. And Europe is already in chaos. And in his view, the United States is in decline. And he views those as favorable conditions for China achieving a community of common destiny for mankind, as he puts it. And as you unpack what he means by that phrase, it's not a pretty vision. This is a, a vision for remaking global governance to make it safe for authoritarianism. So uh, understanding that, that uh, U.S. action should be in our interests, what would you think, Matt, if after the end of the National People's uh, uh, Congress that's, that's going on now, President Biden were to pick up the phone, as I wrote last week, and initiate contact with 
Xi Jinping, perhaps simply by telephone, perhaps with the you know, idea of meeting down the road. Is that something that you'd support as, as being sensible so long as it was gr grounded in U.S. interests? If it's sure, if it's grounded in U.S. interests to have to have uh, President Biden uh, initiate a call, uh, you know, Be Beijing's going to going to portray any contact between the leaders as initiated by the United States, uh, even if it isn't initiated by the United States. That's part of their, uh, uh, you know, their shtick. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, against what you uh, laid out in your column, um, but I, I just think that we have to we we have to not forget that we have tried many, many times, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, uh, the Biden administration now, have, have made efforts at uh, beginning dialogues uh, on areas where we think that there is a mutual interest, there's an interest in for, for all of humanity, for us to be cooperating and collaborating. It is Beijing that does not want to make those substantive or which Beijing wants to use our interest in those dialogues as leverage to get us to uh, make concessions in areas that have nothing to do with uh, those areas where we think we should be collaborating, whether it's you know counter narcotics or it's uh, pandemic uh, prevention and, and response, uh, or it's uh, climate change, uh, or the the choking of our oceans with plastic, most of which comes uh, out of Chinese rivers. It's Chinese pollution that's. Uh, choking our oceans, or if it's overfishing, again, or, or even non-proliferation. As you go back and you follow the thread, uh, China is the, is the most consequential contributor to these problems. All those problems I just mentioned, China is the most uh, significant contributor, and it should not surprise us that Beijing is not all that interested in, in uh, working in good faith to resolve those issues. I'm not saying that we don't try. I'm just saying Let's be realistic here. Let's just be realistic. There's already a track record that is not encouraging here. Uh, Matt, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to just ask you about a couple of big issues that have been in the news, starting with Chinese surveillance balloons. I, I want to ask you, when you were uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, privy to all of our secrets, were you aware of the extent to which China was looking at balloons as a tool of national security, surveillance, et cetera? No, I, I, I was not aware of it. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, listening to some of the follow-on statements from the uh, the Biden administration, um, uh, you know, I, I, I give the benefit of the doubt to a lot of our professionals in, in uh, the national security space and the intelligence community. I think that, that, that some of those early activities at least with respect to these massive balloons, like the one that was spotted first over Montana and flying over the breadth of our country, um, uh, were uh, e either not detected or were detected but not understood to be what uh, uh, what they turned out to be. Uh, you know, this this thing was was clearly uh, uh, a spy balloon, not a weather balloon. Uh, but no, it, it was actually news to me. I've been doing some reading uh, just of open source materials in China to try to learn more uh, in the last few weeks since that thing was first spotted to try to understand what their their uh, what they call near space program is. And it, and, and it is actually a rather advanced program. And uh, I think that that Beijing has lots of ideas about uh, what to use these balloons for that go beyond you know, eavesdropping and espionage, but also include things like targeting 
uh, uh, missiles, in some cases, even launching. They've done some experiments with uh, launching hypersonic missiles or, or uh, building this thing as a platform that could be used to launch hypersonic missiles. Uh, it, it could replace some of the, the critical communications that would take place during war in the event that uh, we blinded or, or destroyed uh, much of their satellite constellation. So this is a very advanced program. I, I have to confess, I, I didn't really know anything about it when I was in office. It's it's fascinating, given how much open source literature there, there is going back almost a decade about all the things they were thinking about that people like you who were really smart at No China were not aware of. It. It's 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 peculiar. It, 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 somebody ought to do a scrub and figure out why we didn't have that more clearly in mind. So you mentioned earlier uh, China's discussion, consideration of providing weapons to Russia for the Ukraine war. Where do you think they are in that uh, decision calculus? Do you see any evidence that they've actually begun inexorable actions to, 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 to send those weapons? And if they do, if we do have that evidence, what should we do about it? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think... I, I think this current situation is troubling. I, I, I'm not optimistic, to be honest. I, I, I commend President Biden for taking the step a year ago. You remember that um, it was a year ago that the U.S. discovered uh, that Beijing was preparing to provide um, uh, weapons, you know, lethal support to Russia. Uh, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, flew to Rome to meet with uh, with one of his counterparts, Chinese counterparts, to warn them that this would result in um, uh, U.S. sanctions. Uh, President Biden followed followed up with a video call, a lengthy video call to uh, Xi Jinping to warn him as well. Uh, and I, I think we had some cabinet secretaries, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Commerce, also warning that there would be substantial U.S. sanctions applied to China. Uh, in, in ways that would be even systemic, perhaps targeting banks, Chinese commercial banks, and so forth. Uh, it, it sounds to me like we we had a year of quiet. You know, we bought a year of uh, of, uh, uh, of of Beijing res Beijing restraint on this front uh, through those efforts. But now that uh, the U.S. has made public that it has information that Beijing is uh, very seriously contemplating resuming. Uh, that original plan to provide lethal support to this war in Europe, um, I think is very is a very bad sign. I think it, it means that Beijing is really looking to see whether it can find ways, uh, covert uh, ways to uh, to move all of that equipment that Russia needs, uh, you know, into that conflict. What why is Beijing doing this? I think that that Xi Jinping's uh, original uh, hope was probably uh, very much aligned with Putin's, and that would have been for a very rapid victory by Russia over Ukraine. Failing that, I think that Beijing uh, may believe that it has an interest in prolonging the war as long as possible to drain uh, uh, Western attention, NATO attention, uh, to drain treasure and, uh, and stockpiles of weapons as long as possible uh, to, to create a more favorable uh, strategic uh, 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 situation in the Western Pacific, uh, including around around Taiwan. So, what should we do? I think that President it will be incumbent upon President Biden to hold uh, to and enforce the red line that he has clearly painted, publicly painted, uh, in that call that he made a year ago to Xi Jinping. That means that we would have to pursue 
some form of not just pinprick sanctions against a few obscure companies, but systemic ones designed uh, to uh, impose grave uh, uh, punishment on Beijing for trying to uh, uh, get involved in a war in Europe. Uh, this is totally unacceptable. And I think that the Biden administration is going to have to follow through on the red line that it painted here. That, that, that will require systemic sanctions if it comes to it. So, uh, Matt, we're, we're slightly over here. I'm going to ask you a one-word uh, question. Uh, you resigned uh, as Deputy National Security Advisor on January 6th because you were so troubled by what, what you saw happening at the Capitol. I want to ask you, if President Trump, he appears to be running for president again, could you support him for 2024? Well, look, I, I'm... Um, uh, likely to support other candidates uh, uh, this time around. Thank you uh, for joining us, Matt. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Come back again. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.